Welcome to China Invest, a podcast designed to help us understand the why to, the how to, and importantly, the when to invest in the China market. China represents nearly 20% of global GDP and yet less than 1% of most investment portfolios. My view is that we're all going to have to become more educated, knowledgeable, and confident about investing in China in the future. And this podcast is designed to help us all get started. In today's podcast, I'm delighted to, to introduce Chi Wong, the founder and CEO of Megatrust Investments based in Hong Kong. I've known Chi since his time with MSCI in Hong Kong, and I particularly enjoy his regular newsletter, Daily Reflection on China, which is a must read for those of us trying to make sense of what's happening in China and why it matters. Chi heads up the investment team and has over 14 years asset management experience as an investor in China. So welcome, Chi, to the China Invest podcast. Thanks, David. It's a, it's a great pleasure to be here. Thanks. Yes, thank you for your time. Now, let's start, as we always do, by addressing the topics that investors are most worried about at the moment. And it's very hard right now at the uh, beginning of December 2022 not to talk about COVID. Uh, the COVID zero policy, the lockdowns, the restrictions, and now the opening up, which has only really just started. So how do you mm. think this will impact on the economy and uh, in and for investment markets um, in 2023? Yeah, I would say, you know, this event is really timely because the last couple of weeks, literally in the last couple of weeks, there have been lots of changes in China, almost 180 degree turn from the so-called zero COVID to now more cities gradually opening up. Um, what I'm, what we're witnessing is almost every day there are changes to the 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 virus controls in Shenzhen, and Guangzhou, Beijing, and Shanghai. And in fact, people couldn't even catch up with the changes sometimes, and take some time to get used to it. But long story short, the, the thesis, if anything, here is really about the recovery, uh, uh, whether uh, China opens up or not. Uh, the economy is on a path towards a recovery, partly, partly because of the low base and partly uh, because, you know, China seems to be taking a more pragmatic approach to virus control as opposed to completely ignoring the economic risk. So I think going forward, we can see China taking a more balanced approach to this uh, antivirus versus economy. Now they also have to take consideration of the social impact, right? We see this about a week or two weeks ago, these small scale protests across China because people are not satisfied, not happy with uh, how the local governments are implementing uh, these these uh, uh, these restrictions. Yes, so because generally obviously... we're optimistic. Yeah, well, government policy is one thing, and and obviously the government has has moved almost 180 degrees in the last <laughs> week. Um, mm. But the real question is how it will impact on the on the the mentality of individuals who've been used to living with COVID and now suddenly going to have to um, or get living with restrictions. They're now going to have to start living with COVID. And of yeah. course, that, there will be more infections. There'll be more uh, hospitalizations. There'll be more deaths. And everyone's going to have to come to terms with that, as we've done in other countries where, you know, we perhaps opened up several months ago. Do you have any worries about how this might impact on economic progress in China? Uh, there are certain risks uh, with the reopening. I think uh, you highlighted mentality being one. Are people really prepared mentally, physically, 
uh, and the other is the you know the the healthcare care point the healthcare facilities hospitals. There are many issues here, and for China, it's all heading to an unknown. But like I said, it it won't change the general direction of China reopening. Um, and one thing I want to mention here is that. We're not just seeing China lifting these restrictions. China is doing many other things along with it to ensure these risks that you just mentioned are addressed. Of course, there are other risks that we don't know about uh, in the future, but uh, at least the risks on the table, I think the government's taking action to address it. For example, back to the mentality question you had earlier, um, the government is intentionally uh, you know, using propaganda try to downplay the health effects of Omicron. In reality, Omicron is not that you know, fatal. So it has most cases mild symptoms and most cases probably do not need hospitalization. So last couple of weeks, I saw this all over the, the state media, the social media talking about, you know, no, don't worry about the uh, Omicron and, and, and there's no big, uh, generally there, there's no severe symptoms and no, more importantly, there are no severe uh, uh, side effects or after effects. So that kind of helped alle alleviate the people's fear about the virus and avoid you know, a panic. And there's also a lot of education on, on self-help and self-care in case um, you get infected. So not everyone has to be rushed to the hospital. And on hospital front, I just want to mention one more point that for the last three years, may, all the major cities in China have built these so-called cabin hospitals. The, the makeshift quarantine centers, uh, massive. They can accommodate tens of tens of thousands of people in case the hospitals are overrun. These are just some of the measures that, of course, there's also the, the campaign to increase the vaccination among the elderly in order to prepare for a full reopening. Mm. Well, it's a very interesting experiment. There's a lot of people in China and they live in fairly crowded conditions so hmm. um, the rest of the world has been through this in its own different ways uh, now I yep. guess we'll have to see how it how it pans out now what about other risks so one risk that um, perhaps doesn't get mentioned so much now but was certainly an issue um, two or three months ago was is all is around the whole sovereign risk issue like how people know that they can invest their money into China but many people worry about whether they can get their money out again um, what, what's your comment on the sort of whole sovereign risk around investing in China, particularly after Russia mm. invaded Ukraine yeah. and all the geopolitics that spilled out of that? Well, if you mean sovereign credit risk, I don't think it's an issue. Of course, we have a, a major currency depreciation in China this year, partly because of the U.S. interest rate hikes and also the strong U.S. dollar. It's happening everywhere. Um, the, the currency depreciation, but still China here in terms of currency is better off than most countries. So RMB actually appreciated against the Euro and appreciated against the Japanese Yen and a bunch of other uh, emerging market currencies. Um, then onto the geopolitical risk and also the US-China relations, the trade war, and particularly the tech war, the semiconductor war. I, I think all these are important factors, risk factors. Uh, and you're absolutely right. These things should be on investors' radar screen, and these risks are not going away. And in some cases, like the semiconductor war or sanctions, things are actually getting worse. Um, but 
if we take a step back and, and, and uh, had, a, had a more macro view, the US-China relations have at least stopped deteriorating, I, I'll say, after the Biden-Xi meeting. That meeting, I think, is a bit of a turning point in terms of smoothing out the US-China relations and turning this into more a, a strategic competition than a so-called uh, conflict. So I think this is important. Uh, the, the sovereign risk is there, but I think it's easy. Um, and then you talk about the, the money flow and capital uh, control these issues. Uh, I don't see it in this cycle. So this actually one of the things I want to talk about as one of the drivers for next year is that despite all this, despite the China markets being horrible, in fact, we're having a bit of crisis now in both Hong Kong and in China, into the stock market crisis. But um, I have not heard any global investors having trouble getting the money out. Have you? I don't no. think so. You can you can sell, you can buy, you can go come and go as you wish. The QFI program works. The Stock Connect works very well. Nothing stops. And in the meantime, China continues to open up. And you can take a cynical view and say, oh, China's opening up because it needs the foreign capital at this point. You know, it's desperate for you know money inflows it, wrong uh if you look at the the, the 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 new measure they implemented for opening the financial markets this year mostly are, are derivatives futures options and you can take both long and short views on on these for foreign investors so in fact you can almost say they're making more instruments that you can short on china at this moment um and why the government's doing it? I think they wanted to increase the attractiveness of this market by offering more hedging tools, um, and also want to make more more e convenient or easier for global investors to trade uh, this market, Asia market. Yeah, and while we're talking about risks, before we get on to um, your thoughts about the coming opportunities. Um, mm. I've, I've seen you write in your daily reflections um, in answer to the question, is China investable? And you made some quite interesting points about where, whether China is investable or not um, and referred to some of the work you did at MSCI um, yeah. around the, the investable index. I think that would be very relevant. Yeah, it, this is a big question now. I, I, you know, we, we don't often um, discuss this whether China is investable, because for the past 20 years, people assume China is investable and a lot of money, a lot of people has made a lot of money in this market. Uh, investability is tricky because it's a very subjective matter. So I can't sit here and tell you, okay, this must be investable and you have to invest in it. There's no such thing because everyone has to make their own call on that. Um, now, if there's any global standard Okay, if we if we want to establish some common ground on this topic, if there's any global standard, it has to be the index providers, right? So MSCI, FTSE, uh, S and P, all of these global index providers have a well-established system of figuring out which markets are investable or not investable. So, for example, MSCI, which I used to work for has something called a global investor market index methodology and has very clearly laid out rules on how to define the investability of a country or a market. 
And according to that rule, China is certainly investable, not only just the Hong Kong part of China, not only the ADRs, but more importantly, also the onshore China Asia market. So if you believe that's the standard, then China investable. And and that index presumably deals with structural issues, right? So reasons why yeah. you should or shouldn't invest it. So for example, is Russia mm. investable at the moment? Russia was removed in, I believe, in March of this year, right after the war broke out. The war broke out in February, and in March, Russia was kicked out of the MSCI indices. So you can kind of right. see, at least based on that standard, no longer investable. But I don't think China uh, nearly faced that type of issue. I think earlier this year, there was a point uh, that people started speculate, well, will China follow? Right? You mentioned earlier that the Russia-Ukraine war, and it also impact China, impact the global settlement on China, the, the geopolitics aspect of this. Um, yeah, so people speculated that, well, maybe China will follow Russia. I think that's crazy. I, I don't think that ever, that would ever happen uh, because, <laughs> you, know, uh, you know, China is not in this war um, no. and uh, China is also too big to, to to be to have a, such a such a such a decision of of, of kicking being kicked out of the index. Uh, for just for the context, uh, China today accounts for thirty percent of the uh, emerging market index in general. Thirty percent, and this is this is in spite of the un massive underperformance of China versus the rest of the world. It is still thirty percent of emerging markets. Yeah, and I guess it wouldn't be if uh, people thought it was not investable. Um, which is the point? Which is the point you're making? Now, yeah. Chi, I know that you're a bottom-up stock picker at Megatrust, so you you tend to come at the market from the bottom and work your way upwards. And uh, but I think it would be helpful to hear some of your thoughts on the macro point perspective on yeah. what you think will drive the stock market in 2023 in terms of the economy, the markets, uh, and the trends uh, across China. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, for next year, it's actually quite simple. We're looking at a, a, a classic cyclical recovery. Uh, and so you can call this a macro recovery or economic recovery or valuation recovery. Essentially, it's the same thing. So basically, as the fundamentals improve, uh, which is already improving, and, and beat the low expectation, uh, which is reflected in evaluation, we, we could have a sustained rally in Chinese equities. Uh, so two things are very important. One is the in, in fundamentals has to improve, right? And the other is that valuation need to be low enough. Both these conditions were set up for, for a, a, I think, a sustained uh, rally perhaps in, in China equities, including Hong Kong. Um, and it's already happening, you can say. That, that's already been happening. Hong Kong, if you look at a Hong Kong Hansen Index, it probably recovered 30% from the bottom. Uh, China also recovered 20-something percent. Uh, just in, in a very short period of time, last, last I would say, just a month or so. Um, now, valuation, I mentioned earlier, it is at, at an all-time low. Uh, I acknowledge that some of the previous speakers on this series also talked about valuation uh, being a driver. I don't think valuation alone can be a driver. I've never seen a market when, when it just bounces back because it hits the low end of the valuation. Um, uh, the key, again, like I said, is really what is the incremental change in the fundamentals? Are things getting better? Um, 
if so, I think um, you, you know both the sentiment and earnings can improve. And then specifically, you know, what what give us the conviction that next year will be better? Uh, four things. Uh, first is the low base this year. Um, you know, I don't know what is the official numbers now for China's uh, GDP forecast this year. It's not it, actually it's not relevant anymore because we almost passed 2020. 22 and uh the official government target uh, the official target for gdp is something like 4.5 or something and i don't think we can hit that uh, anyway so this year has been probably one of the lowest gdp growth in the last few decades uh uh consensus maybe three percent but i think it's probably close to two percent not three percent and and that work sets up some easy comp for next year uh, and uh, uh, the, the, other, the second issue is the policy. Uh, and also, uh, it, this is very well publicized, so I will be really brief here. Uh, in terms of monetary policy, China is cutting rates, unlike the US or Europe. So we recently just had another 25 basis point cut to the so-called triple R, uh, reserve requirement ratio for the banks. And that's equivalent of injecting 500 billion RMB or 70 billion US dollar into the system. And certainly China has more room to cut in terms of interest rates and uh, triple R's. Uh, the fiscal stimulus. So this year we've seen a lot of tax cuts and also lots of infrastructure spendings, trillions of dollars, trillions of RMB and hundreds of billions of dollars um, into the, the, the new infrastructures. And uh, one thing to watch for next year is the People's Congress in March, uh, 2023, when China will elect a new government. And this is when we can expect more stimulus after that, uh, something to look forward to in 2023. And number three is the capital market uh, opening, which I just talked about. Um, I think will also uh, provide, uh, put China market uh, help China market move on to the global stage. And finally is liquidity. And I, I'm surprised like no one's talking about this right now. Everyone was focusing on the negative aspect of China, the risk, risk side of China. But on a positive side, you know, um, uh, China has, still has lots of money on the sideline that, that's ready to go into the stock market. Uh, uh, just to give you some numbers, the personal savings in China just added about 13 trillion RMB this year. That's almost 2 trillion US dollar in one year alone, okay? And the total savings in China is around 115 trillion right now. It's about $16 trillion. So you can kind of see there's no, no, no issue with the liquidity is really when will people become confident enough to put that money to work? Um, and one technical reason is that, you know, how come suddenly the liquidity just, just pile up? Uh, two reasons, one is that you know, of course, in the current environment, people are getting more conservative, worry about their jobs, worry about the future, and spending less and saving more. And as you know, Chinese people just love to save anyway, right? We're the biggest saver in the whole world and uh, the highest saving rate. Uh, the second reason also very important is the real estate market is softening this year. And people generally have low confidence in buying properties. And you know, like before, for the longest time, the number one investments for China, for Chinese people, is real estate. They buy real estate, not in China, everywhere, in Australia. And real estate uh, account for well over 50% of, 
of the household asset allocation. And I would say that's disproportionately high. When people stop buying real estate and start to reallocate that money elsewhere, I think it's gonna be very powerful. On the other hand, financial assets like stocks and bonds account for less than 20% of Chinese households' wealth. So whether 2023 or beyond or the next five to 10 years, we can see continuing uh, rebalance of this household wealth from real estate to the stock market. And you can say that's almost a good side effect of the real estate uh, bubble that's being popped. Um, so, yeah, so that's, I'm not, that's an interesting. Mm. Yeah, sorry, that's an interesting point, isn't it? Because we, as we know, chi domestic Chinese people, investors who with very high savings, can only really invest in three things, which is cash, uh, the stock market, or real estate. And as we know, yeah. for the last twenty years, for the last twenty years, it's all gone into real estate because. A, people feel safe investing in real estate. And secondly, you know, the markets have all gone up because of China's urbanization program. And it's only really mm. in the last 12 months that so the real estate sector has come under a lot of, lot of pressure. Um, so this enormous uh, liquidity um, is going to have to find a home somewhere. Uh, the yeah. cash deposit rate is at an all-time low. So it's going to probably end up in the markets. Yeah, so Australia, if you find less and less Chinese buyers for your real estate, that's probably good news for the Chinese stock market, huh? <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Yes. So the um, money has to go somewhere, like you said. The money has to go somewhere. And that, just tell me that figure again, the personal savings in the last couple of years. Uh, the balance as of uh, uh, the last month is 115 trillion RMB. Which is at what, 60 clear? trillion US dollars. And this year alone, that's as of October, 10 months, we added 13 trillion. So that's 13 trillion of, uh, of, of new personal savings um, in the last how long? 10 months. Yeah. Year to date. Well, that's it's extraordinary, isn't it? That, yeah. that uh, the personal, personal savings in China is at that yeah. kind of level. So, okay, Chi, let's get mm. to where you spend most of your time, which is stock picking. Mm -hmm. So yeah. Um, yeah. now that we've covered off on some of the risks and the macro issues, that let's talk about the market and the, the sectors and the air and the stocks that you're looking at and um, some of your thoughts about how they will perform next year. Yeah, so I'm not sure how much time we got left. I'll, I'll, I'll try to be uh -huh. uh, brief and, 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 and uh, go to the, directly to the point that uh, before I talk about the, the topics and the sector and themes, I, I wanna have a brief intro to our strategy. So we run something called a quality growth and we focus on China Asia's. And what do we mean by quality? Quality is really about sustainability. So quality growth is sustainable growth, long-term sustainable growth. So for us, we don't just invest in great companies, but we invest in great companies that can last. Uh, and you really think about China, it's not always the case. There's so, too many superstars in China that one-shot wonders, they grow fast for a couple of years and just disappear. A lot of these companies face these problems. So we try to avoid those, those situations and focus on things that can uh, deliver something that's uh, steady and long-term growth. Um, and with respect to the strategy, naturally, we will invest in consumption, healthcare, technology, and industrials, not like cyclicals and like energy and uh, commodities, because like I said, these things tend to be cyclical, not a kind of a long-term uh, cycle of growth. 
that's our sector strategy. And our sector strategy doesn't really change that much uh, year over year. We may have some tactical uh, kind of rebalance or, or tactical shifts within these big uh, four or five sectors that we invest in. For, for next year, uh, I think there, there are a couple of things that, that, that we think are interesting. Uh, one, obviously, is the consumption uh, as part of China reopening and also the real estate recovery. And, um, and you're right, uh, the trajectory is, is going to be nonlinear. Uh, we may even take two steps forward and one step back, and they'll be full of uh, challenges. But the general direction is there. So for reopening, it's good for consumption, travel, our topic. One of our topics here is China duty-free. This is a state-owned monopoly in duty-free shopping. And yesterday, the Hainan Island just launched a, a bunch of plans and, and the, the so-called duty-free shopping festival trying to promote the, the onshore duty-free shopping uh, in, in, in Hainan. Uh, and Hainan, by the way, is one of the most popular tropical destinations for China, Chinese tourists. Um, for real estate recovery, we like the liquor sector and I'll explain later why we don't like real estate stocks at this point. Uh, for 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 the uh, liquor stocks, if you look at historical patterns, uh, they tend to be correlated with real estate. So stocks like Motai, Wuliangye, and uh, Fun Wine. Um, and for the real estate stocks themselves, I think the business model has been forever changed because of whatever happened this year in the last couple of years. Uh, and again, I won't. Uh, I, I'm not going to go through all the details, but. Uh, going forward for real estate stocks and the sector, we're looking at significantly lower ROE because of the lower margins and lower leverage. So uh, it's um, it's a, it will be a classic value trap. So so it, this is the reason I, we try to avoid them. And and by the way, these stocks I just mentioned earlier, China duty free, including multi. It's a it's a U.S. U.S. three hundred billion dollar company. These stocks can be volatile. And that volatility came from the fact that the, 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 the path to recovery, the path to reopening is also volatile. So for example, Motai was down uh, almost 39% in October and bounced back 16% last month. Um, so this is something that we need to think about, even though we like these stocks and think about how to manage the short-term risk. So that's the honest consumption. And number two is, uh, is, is something called advanced manufacturing or the, the so-called industrial tech and things like um, solar panels, electric vehicles, home appliances, consumer electronics, et cetera. And I wrote something called um, the, uh, I wrote a four part series on uh, daily reflection on China, the newsletter um, that, we, that we publish. And we argue that China We'll probably lose the high-tech wall because of the U.S. Section, sanctions, but I, I think they will win on low-tech. Um, and uh, in part four of the article, we talk about specifically the 11 advantages that China has in advanced manufacturing. Not just one, but almost a dozen of these competitive advantages China have developed it over the years. And it's no wonder, you know, China is the manufacturing center 
for these things. 60 to 70% of the electric vehicle supply chain, uh, the solar equipment supply chain, uh, things like that. So things uh, the, these advantages, including the government policy subsidy, the low energy cost, and also the low labor costs. And people think, well, labor costs are no longer competitive in China. Uh, wrong. I think dollar for dollar, China is to offer uh, a, a good value in terms of labor. Um, and the superior infrastructure, uh, you have China also being the biggest home market for these products. For example, electric vehicles, no doubt, China's already number one market globally. Thus, China can support the local industries with um, a big enough market. Um, things like that. So for, for this sector, uh, there, there are also a lot of stocks uh, we can look at. Uh, I would just name a couple. Uh, one is called Eve Energy. Uh, this is an emerging leader in power batteries using electric vehicles. And you probably heard of CATL. It's now the number one in the world coming out of China. And you can think of this almost like a, like a second CATL, a, a challenger. Um, upcoming uh, number two player. It's growing faster than CATL, partly because of the low base. Um, and it's also selling to global automakers like Daimler and BMW. Um, and the second is a, a stock called Ganfeng Lithium. Um, and lithium, as you know, is the critical material used in power batteries, electric vehicle batteries, and uh, of course, next year, people talk about possible price cuts, price declines, because this year we really have a big hike in lithium prices. But still, if you look at the long term, mid to long term, uh, lithium demand is still expected to grow 30%, something like 30% a year compounded. And uh, even Tesla now found it that they should invest in lithium earlier, but now they look around most of its own by uh, Chinese companies. And this is the leader, Ganfeng Lithium. It has both A share and H shares, is the leader in lithium resources. Um, um, and um, that's the story. And uh, number three trend, I talk about consumption, talk about advanced manufacturing. And let me quickly touch up on the infrastructure. Remember I talk about from the top-down angle, from the macro theme, we should watch for this infrastructure spending in China as part of the fiscal stimulus. And then today, China is not just investing in uh, railroads, highways, airports, the traditional infrastructure, but increasingly the new infrastructure. So what do we mean by that? Like uh, 3G, uh, sorry, 5G networks, artificial intelligence networks, industrial internet, Electric vehicle charge stations also, that's the biggest in the world now in China. The network of charge stations for EVs, uh, the also um, uh, um, uh, high-speed railroad, and also the last but not the least, the medical infrastructure. So why medical infrastructure? I think one lesson from this fiasco in COVID control is that China has probably underinvested in um, public health care. So uh, starting this year, uh, we are seeing policies being put in place to build up the hospitals and clinics and the care points, not just in the big cities, particularly in the small rural areas and the, the lower tier cities is where uh, 
uh, hundreds of millions of people live and also there's generally a lack of the medical infrastructure. So this is also a very, I would say, a, a, a viable theme in the next five to 10 years as China increases the healthcare spending, increases the investment in public healthcare. And for this, we like a medical equipment company called MindRay. It is the largest medical equipment company in China. It's probably number 16 or 20 in the world. I have no problem seeing this company getting to the top 10 in the next five years. The biggest healthcare market in the world is going to be in China, not Australia for sure, <laughs> not Singapore or Japan. It's going to be in China. And this is the company, this is the number one leader. It's going to benefit from this infrastructure spending I talked about earlier, the hospital, uh, uh, hospital construction expansion uh, to provide more basic care uh, and to provide more emergency care, uh, things like that. Mm. Well, thank you. No, good. Um, now we're we're at, we're really out of time. We've got a couple of minutes. This is the final China Invest podcast for this year, and we're getting very close to the end of 2022. So maybe in a in a couple of minutes or so, could you just give give us your top three predictions for next year um, as as succinctly as you can, um, and then we can listen to the podcast in six months' time and tell tell you <laughs> if you, find out if you were right or not. Most likely, I'll be wrong. <laughs> you know this the uh i, I think who said that was uh you know it's, it's it's easy to make predictions if it's about it's not about the future or something like that so, <laughs> so um uh, I'll, I'll take a shot in fact all through this conversation uh i've been talking about uh, some predictions so the number one thing is is kind of a, a a fact not a prediction that i predict that next year china as we know it will still be around and it's one point for billion consumers was to have to be working, eating, travel, and shop online, like everyone else in the world. So uh, I know this sounds like I'm stating the obvious, but this is something that global investors tend to forget in the worst times of the Chinese stock market this year. You know, this is China's the second largest economy, and there's one point for billion people um, that form a large consumption base. That's why I talked about consumption earlier. So this is will always be be an investment theme, regardless of the economic environment. Um, and number two is the reopening. I talked about this before. That you know we noticed as early as September that there's signs of reopening. So China will reopen. It's reopening slowly but surely. The Chinese economy is recovering slowly but surely, and the real estate market and consumption will also come back and slowly but surely. Like I said, there will be a, very, it'll be a very choppy recovery, but don't lose sight on the trajectory. The trajectory is up. Uh, and lastly is that, um, that on, the, on the stock market, of course, <laughs> I know you like to ask your guests about this. Um, this is a tricky one because the, I talk about the recovery in terms of the, the macro recovery, economic recovery, but the stock market may, run ahead of it or may run behind it. So uh, it, it's kind of difficult to say, you know, it, it's not a one-to-one -one match, right? It's not like, okay, economy hit this point, the dot market will be trading at this level. So uh, most likely I think it may run ahead. So this is, we wanna think about whether you wanna act early or late. Uh, and like I said, next year will be very volatile. So if I wanna make a prediction on the, on the 
On the total return for next year, conservatively speaking, we're looking at maybe the high single digit, low double digit return next year. So it's not gonna be a spectacular year like 2015 or 2007. But if you look at intra-year, like even a year like this year, if you pick a low point to the high point, the Hanson Tech Index recovered 50% in in couple months, in less than two months. So this kind of show you that how fast the market can move if you're not prepared. Um, and if, if you have a conviction that you can still make a lot of money and buy when everybody's panicking, that's always the case. The majority of the crowd, you know, they don't really make money in this market because they're retail driven. They easily panic and always sell, sell low and buy high. And, you know, we like to do the opposite. Great. Thank you, Chi. Well, look, thank you for your time today um, and for your insights. Um, I highly recommend the Daily Reflection on China, which um, uh, is a subscription service that you run, which I, I, I always enjoy reading. Um, and of you. course, Megatrust, Mega uh, you have an online presence. People can uh, check you out there. But um, but Chi, thank you for being with us and on the China Invest podcast. And, um, and good luck in 2023. Hope you can make us all lots of money. Thanks. Great to be here. And uh, thanks to all of you for joining us this year on the China Invest podcast. This is the last issue of 2022. We'll be back in early 2023 um, and we'll hopefully uh, be in a very different kind of environment. And uh, certainly all of our speakers in recent times have been talking about the opening up of China, the changing environment and the improving um, uh, economic and uh, market conditions. I think uh, 2023 is going to be a great year. So thanks all for being here. Bye for now.